take God's Word tonight, please, and I want you to open to the Old Testament book of 2 Kings. Now, some of you know that we did a series in First and 2 Kings a while back, and uh, we really didn't get to finish that. Um, we interrupted it with a series called Family Matters, and then right after that, Prayer Matters. And, um, but we're going to finish up this whole series tonight because we're going to be looking at the last two chapters of 2 Kings. So we're going to kind of bring all this to a close. Now, this is two long chapters, and so obviously we're not going to touch on every verse, so we're going to kind of look at it more of in a summary-type way. Um, but the whole message of this I've, I've titled, Hope in a Day of Wrath. So look in 2 Kings chapter 24, and we'll start in verse number 1, and we'll touch on a few verses in these two chapters. Um, in verse number 1, In his days Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up, and Jehoiakim became his servant three years. Then he turned and rebelled against him. Now, the idea of God's wrath or God's judgment is not an attribute that we like to talk about. We would much rather talk about God's love and his mercy. We would much rather talk about the fact that God is a God of salvation. And I would prefer to preach on those things, by the way. I'd much rather preach on the love of God than on the wrath of God. Maybe that's a fault in me. You know, we have a tendency to treat the attributes of God like a buffet, like a smorgasbord, you know. We fill our plate with the attributes of God that we really like, and the ones about God that we don't like, we kind of ignore them. But the result of that is that it gives us an unbalanced view of God. We think more about the, the love of God and the mercy of God than we do about God's wrath. Now, God is a God of love and mercy. He is a God of salvation and deliverance. He is a God of forgiveness and compassion. Praise God for that. Amen? But that's half of the truth. He's also a God of wrath. He's also a God of judgment and justice. Uh, when I did my Ph.D. dissertation, it was on two verses in Exodus, Exodus 34, 6 and 7, because in that revelation that God gave to Moses, when Moses said, Lord, show me your way, show me your glory, and God revealed himself to Moses, and what he did in that, those two verses were, in the Hebrew, it's much more uh, clear. There are 16 Hebrew words that talk about God's mercy and love, but there's also 16 Hebrew words that talk about God's wrath and judgment. So it's kind of a perfect balance there. And this was, the, this was a foundational revelation of God to himself. It is the revelation of God that all of the Old Testament prophets would refer to when they talked about the character of God. That's the way God revealed himself. He's a God of love, but he's also a God of wrath. And he is the one who gets to choose whether or not he displays his love or his wrath. But again, today people don't want to think about wrath and judgment. According to most surveys on the subject, Many Americans doubt that there will ever be a final judgment. Uh, consider, for example, a report from the LifeWay Research entitled, Americans Love God and the Bible and are Fuzzy on the Details. It says, LifeWay asked people whether they believed in a place of eternal judgment where God sends all people who do not personally trust in Christ. More than half the people they surveyed did not believe in hell but we're more likely to believe that heaven is a place where all people will ultimately be reunited. So we love to think about the fact that there's a heaven, but we don't like to think about the fact that there's a hell. And to a lot of people, heaven, everyone's going to be there. The only thing you have to do to go to heaven is die. That's it. One time a pastor asked his son, he goes, you know, if you were to die and stand before God, and he said, why should I let you into heaven, what would you tell him? And his son said, I would say, because I'm dead. You know, that's why. Uh, well, the, the 
that answer was a little discouraging to that pastor father. You have to do more than die to go to heaven. But yet there's a lot of people that think that that's all you have to do to go to heaven, that everyone's going to go there. Uh, Most people would prefer to think happy thoughts than uncomfortable realities about the wrath of God. And sadly, even those who call themselves Christians can sometimes be put in that category. We should be alert to the fact that God is a holy God. And yes, we delight in his love, but also we must recognize that he is a God of holy wrath who will judge sin. When Michelangelo painted the altarpiece for the Sistine Chapel, it was a scene of the last judgment. And most of the artists that would paint scenes like that would do it in the back of the auditorium where people leaving on the way out would see that, and it would be a reminder to them of how to live their life for Christ. But when Michelangelo painted his famous fresco about the last judgment, he put it in the front of the church, which forced people to look at it during the worship time and to remember the fact that there is going to be a judgment. He wanted them to see their need for the gospel. The Bible has a way of keeping God's judgment right in front of us. We're tempted to forget about those things, but the Bible emphasizes these things. Paul, in his book of Romans, when he was starting to write about his great treaties of the gospel, he did not start with the love of God. He started in the first few chapters of Romans talking about the wrath of God. In Romans chapter 1, verse 18, it says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. The word revealed there is a present indicative, constantly being revealed. God's wrath is constantly being seen. Why? Because of the ungodliness and the unrighteousness of men. There are different types of wrath. I mentioned this Sunday morning, different categories of wrath. There's eternal wrath, that's hell. There's eschatological wrath, that's the wrath that God will pour out on the earth in the last days. There is a consequential wrath, that's the principle of sowing and reaping that God wrote into the universe, you will reap what you sow. But then there's also cataclysmic wrath, things like floods, disasters that take place. Some people, when these disasters happen, they say, is God in this? Well, Amos said this, is a trumpet blown in a city and the people are not afraid? Shall a trumpet be blown and the people not be afraid? Shall there be evil in a city and the Lord hath not done it? And that is to say, God, this is all part of God revealing his wrath to mankind. So we need to take God's holy wrath seriously. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. I didn't come to church tonight to hear a sermon about the wrath of God. Well, that's what you're going to get. Sorry. But it's necessary that we hear these things. Why? Because it's the bad news that makes the good news so good. We talk about the gospel, the good news of the gospel. Why is the gospel such good news? It's such good news because God is a God of holy wrath, and the gospel is the thing that delivers people from God's wrath. That's why it's so good. You know, the problem with evangelism nowadays is we don't tell people the bad news. We only say the good news. God loves you and has a great plan for your life. Well, God's not trying to give you the American dream or give you a great plan for your life here and now. The gospel is all about rescuing you from eternal wrath the judgment of God, and having a great life in the life to come. It is knowing Jesus Christ as your Savior. Until you get your, your sins reconciled or you get right with God or you, or you go
go to the cross and have your sins forgiven based on what Christ did. It doesn't really matter what happens to you here on earth. You see, that the gospel is all about the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ. Now, that's why this, this little survey we're going to do here in chapter 24 and 25 at the end of 2 Kings is so very important. Because let me tell you, we're at the point now in the story of the nation of Israel and Judah where God has warned over and over and over again about his coming wrath if the people did not repent. And they didn't take God seriously. God warned that, that they would be carried away as exiles. They didn't take it seriously. God sent his word through prophets like Jeremiah, saying judgment is going to come if you don't repent, and the temple of the Lord will be destroyed, and you'll be carried away. And still the people did not repent. And now, finally, the hour has come when God is going to do all that he said he would do. Just know this, beloved, when God says he's going to do something, he's going to do it. You can bank on that. And this is what's happening here. The hour of judgment finally arrives. God keeps his word. Terrible wrath comes upon his people in the kingdom of Judah. That's what chapter 24 and chapter 25 is about. God had been so good to Israel and Judah. God gave them a throne the throne of David. God gave them a temple, a beautiful temple. God gave them a city, the city of Jerusalem to worship God in. God gave them the land, the promised land. But God's going to pour out his anger and wrath on each of these things just to let the people know that he was not kidding, that his wrath is real. So notice five judgments that take place here. And again, we'll have to touch on these and go through it a little quickly. But first of all, number one, the king was dethroned. We see this in chapter 24, verses 1 and 2. After the death of the godly king Josiah, the throne of David was occupied by a series of ungodly kings who defied God by their rebellion. There was uh, Jehoiahaz, who reigned three months. There's Jehoiachin, also called Jeconiah or Coniah in other places. He reigned three months. But here, we see Jehoiakim in verse number 1, and it says that Nebuchadnezzar invaded, in verse 1, the land of Judah, and he brought it under his control, and Jehoiakim became a vassal king. He was subject to Nebuchadnezzar, the greater king. That was around 606 B.C., but three years later, Jehoiakim rebelled. Remember, Jehoiakim was the evil king that when Jeremiah prophesied this, what did he do to Jeremiah's letter? He cut it up into pieces and threw it in the fire. You don't, you don't cut up God's word and throw it in the fire. God didn't like that very much. And so this king dies. In 598, he died, leaving the throne to his son, Jehoiachin, who reigned for three months. Now, there was a second invasion of Babylon into Jerusalem. That's in 598. And a siege began against the city there. And uh, notice chapter 24. Look down at verse number 8. Again, we're just going to touch on a few of these verses And Jehoiachin was 18 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned in Jerusalem three months. Drop down to verse 9, and he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father had done. Verse 10, and at that time the servants of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up against Jerusalem, and the city was besieged. And so here's God pouring out his wrath. Look at verse 12. And Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, went out to the king of Babylon. He and his mother and his servants and his princes and his officers And the king of Babylon took him in the eighth year of his reign. That is, he carries him off to the land of Babylon. He is now a prisoner. And what Nebuchadnezzar does is he makes Jehoiachin's uncle, Mataniah, he makes him the king now, and he changes his name to Zedekiah, 
Look down in chapter 24, look down at verse number 17. And the king of Babylon made Mataniah, his father's brother, king in his stead and changed his name to Zedekiah. Now, Zedekiah will reign 11 years there in Jerusalem. You know what he does? He rebels too. These guys are pretty dumb, aren't they? They don't learn from the other's mistakes. So Zedekiah rebels. He gets to the point where he doesn't want to pay tribute to Nebuchadnezzar. So what happens? There's a third invasion that comes into the land of Jerusalem, and, and, and this time it's more severe. This time the walls of the city will be torn down. This time the temple will be destroyed. Uh, the king, uh, Zedekiah, and uh, he's captured, and his sons are killed right before his very eyes. Look down in chapter 25 now. Go to chapter 25 and look down in verse number 5 where it says, And the army of the Chaldeans pursued after the king and overtook him in the plains of Jericho, and all his army were scattered from him. And so they took the king and brought him up to the king of Babylon, to Riblah, and they gave judgment upon him. And they slew the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes and put out the eyes of Zedekiah and bound him with fetters of brass and carried him off to Babylon. So here's the last king of Judah. Now, for all practical purposes, the, uh, the throne of David is now empty. Zedekiah was the last king. There's no king on the throne now, and this is part of God's judgment upon the nation. Did you know that ungodly leaders can bring judgment on a nation? That's part of the theme of First and Second Kings. The reason they're carried off into exile is because of the kings. None of them followed the Lord. There was only a few, a handful that really followed the Lord, but they were few and far between. And it's these kings and the way that they led that ultimately brought God's judgment on the nation. But here's number two. The king was dethroned. The people were deported. You know, innocent people were often made to suffer because of ungodly leaders. And when the Babylonians came, they would always carry away slaves to their land, exiles. There were actually three deportations one in 606, one in 598, one in 586. On the first deportation, a guy named Daniel was carried away. Does that name sound familiar? Daniel was carried away on the first deportation. Ezekiel, does that name sound familiar? Ezekiel was carried away on the second deportation into the land of Babylon. And finally, in the third time that the Babylonians invaded, the city was just absolutely destroyed. Now, it was the Babylonians policy to take the best of the people out of the land. They would take the princes, the soldiers, the the craftsmen, the nobles, those of the royal family. Why did they do that? Well, they wanted the best to come down with them to help them and build their empire. They left the poorest of the people behind to manage things under the direction of governors appointed by uh, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. That way, a captive nation would not be able to organize any resistance And, of course, all of this was predicted and prophesied by the prophet Jeremiah. He said all this was going to happen. In fact, you can go all the way back to the beginning, to the book of Deuteronomy and the the law of Moses, where God warned the people, if you don't obey me, if you don't follow my word, this is what's going to happen. And God keeps his word. He did exactly what he said he was going to do. God had to sweep them away. But not all the people that were in the land of Judah were innocent, in fact, most of the people there were guilty of the same sins. Just write down in your margin, Second Chronicles 36.16, where it says that the people despised his words and misused his 
prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people till there was no remedy. People have always mocked the idea of God's judgment. And they, they, they think that since God has delayed to bring judgment, that judgment's not going to come. And they mocked at it. They flatter themselves, saying, oh, you know, God's not going to do this. But God warns and warns, and finally God says, that's enough. That's enough. Judgment will come. There used to be a sign on the river above Niagara Falls that read, the point of no return. They said that when boats go past that point, that means their fate is sealed. They're going over the fall. There's no way to come back at that point. And God's warnings are like that. Although he is a God that is patient and kind, you get to the point where you cross a certain point, and God says, okay, that's it. My patience is done. My mercy is over. You are at the point of no return. Notice where it says, till there was no remedy. They sinned against God until there was no remedy. So the king was dethroned. Number two, the people were destroyed, or deported rather. Number three, the city was destroyed. And we see this again in chapter 25. But just look at one verse. Look in chapter 25. Look in verse number 10. And all the army they called the ends that were with the captain of the guard break down the walls of Jerusalem round about. So this city was destroyed. If you want to read a graphic description of what happened in Jerusalem, sometimes read the book of Lamentations. That was written by Jeremiah. By the way, if you ever go to Israel and you visit Golgotha, if you're, if you're there and you're looking straight at it, it's the shape of a skull. They think that that's where the Lord was crucified. You'll see little caves in the cliff. But just down to the left will be a little cave down there. And that's called Jeremiah's Grotto or Jeremiah's Cave. And according to tradition, Jeremiah was in that cave watching the city of Jerusalem because you can look out and see the city of Jerusalem from that point. And he was in that cave watching the destruction of the city of Jerusalem, writing the book of Lamentations. Most uh, Jewish scholars say that's where the book of Lamentations was written, right there in that cave. He's writing it as he's watching the city destroyed there. And the book of Lamentations is just an incredible description of some of the horrible things that happened. He saw its ruins from that cave. He saw the walls destroyed. He saw the buildings leveled. And so all the things that God said was going to happen, happened. The city was under siege for 18 months, beginning in January of 15, uh, 588 until July 19, 586. Zedekiah, who was the king at that time, tried to run. He tried to flee. But as we just read, he was captured and uh, his sons were put to death before his very eyes. That's the last thing he saw because then they put his eyes out. Um, just like Jeremiah, by the way, Jeremiah again prophesied this, as well as Ezekiel prophesied that Zedekiah would not escape and that he would be carried away to Babylon, but um, he would not see Babylon. And that all happened because his eyes were put out. Uh, he was taken to Babylon, a blind man. So the king was dethroned. The people were deported. The city was destroyed. But here's number four. The temple was defiled. The temple was defiled. Look in chapter 25 and look down at verse number um, 13 to 17. And actually, again, we don't have time to read all of that, but they began to uh, take things away. Look at verse 13. And the pillars of brass that were in the house of the Lord and the bases of the brazen sea that was in the house of the Lord, did the Chaldeans break in pieces and carry the brass of them to Babylon. And it goes on to talk about all the instruments that they carried away. 
They just stripped the temple of all its wealth. The objects that were too large to carry whole, they broke into pieces. The brass, the gold, the silver instruments were all carried away to this heathen land. We're told that Solomon's gold, the treasures, and the palace were included in the spoils. You know what? The Jewish people, they thought God will never let anything happen to his temple. Remember Jeremiah when he was preaching? He preached his famous temple sermon because the people, false prophets rose up and they they said, Jeremiah is a liar. God will not destroy Jerusalem. He will not let anything happen to his temple. And in Jeremiah chapter 7, Jeremiah preached his famous temple sermon. Jeremiah 7, 4, trust ye not in lying words saying the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord are these. That was what the message of the false prophets, Jeremiah said, don't believe the message of the false prophets that this temple here will save you. You know, as long as we have this temple, we're safe as if it's some kind of a, a safety net for them. They were preaching a, a false message. Jeremiah said this in verse 12 of chapter 7, but go ye now into my place, which was in Shiloh, where I first set my, where I set my name at first, and see what I did to it for the wickedness of my people Israel. God said through the prophet, if you don't think I'll destroy this temple, take a trip down to Shiloh, where the first tabernacle was set up and was there for 300 years, and that was the place where people went to worship God. That was the central location where everybody went to. And look what I did to that. Shiloh was absolutely destroyed. God said, you don't think I'll do that to the temple here? In Jeremiah seven thirteen, and now, and now because ye have done all these works, saith the Lord, I spake unto you, rising up early and speaking, but ye heard not, and I called to you, but ye answered not. Therefore will I do unto this house, which is called by my name, wherein ye trust, and unto the place where I, I give unto you and to your fathers, as I have done to Shiloh. This house that you trust in, you think is your salvation? God says, I'm going to destroy it. You know, there are a lot of people that put their hope in a false salvation. They hope in their church. Don't put your hope in a church. Put your hope in Christ. Don't put your hope in rituals or other religious items or things. Put your hope in Jesus Christ and Christ alone. They put all their hope in the temple. They said, oh, God's not going to let that happen. God said, look at Shiloh, and I'm going to destroy this temple too. And indeed, God did. The presence of the temple could not save the nation. It was too late for them. They were being judged. But then here's the last thing. The king was dethroned. The people were deported. The city was destroyed. The temple was defiled. But number five, the land was desolate. The land was less desolate. Again, look at one verse. Look at chapter 25. Look at verse 22. And as for the people that remained in the land of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had left, even over them he made Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, ruler. All that remained on the land were the poorest people. Nebuchadnezzar set up a system of governors, and he carried the people away for 70 years. Now listen to this. 2 Chronicles 36 informs us that the 70 years of captivity were calculated based on the sabbatical years. You know what the people of Israel are supposed to do every seven years? Let the land rest. They didn't let it rest. And if you look at the kings and you add up the time of their reigns, it adds up to about 490 years. And so every seven years they were supposed to give the land rest. So the number seven kind of figures prominently into the reason for the 70 years years. Uh, If you divide 490 by 7, you get 70 years, right? 
or multiply, I should say, or divide, whatever you want to do it. But you see what I'm saying. God carried them away the number of years that they would not let the land rest, 70 years. Every seven years they were to let it rest. And guess what? The land was going to rest for 70 years. So God's judgment, all that to say, God's judgment against his people who did not take him serious was severe. The king dethroned, the people deported, the city destroyed, the temple defiled, the land desolate. Now, in closing, I don't want to leave on a bad note. There is a little bit of hope in this. In fact, the last three verses of 2 Kings 25 kind of gives us hope. That's why I call this hope in a day of wrath. You say, what's the hope? This, this book ends in a very unusual way. Look down at verse number 27. It came to pass in the 7th and 30th year of the captivity of Jehoiachin, king of Judah, in the 12th month, on the 7th and 20th day of the month, that evil Merodach, king of Babylon, in the year that he began to reign, did lift up the head of Jehoiachin, king of Judah, out of prison, and he spake kindly to him and set his throne above the throne of the kings that were with him in Babylon, and changed his prison garments, and he did eat bread continually before him all the days of his life, and his allowance was a continual allowance given him of the king, a daily rate for every day all the days of his life. And that's how it ends. How does it end? How does this whole thing end? It ends with Jehoiachin, who is a king of Judah, a son of David. He's there in prison in Babylon, and there's a king of Babylon who treats him kindly, evil Merodach. He takes him out of the prison, takes off his prison garments, gives him normal garments to wear. In fact, he gives him royal garments to wear, and he lets him eat dinner with him at his table. Wow. Why did he do that? Well, again, God is in control. And what all this does is it leaves the reader, if you're reading 2 Kings, and by the way, who was First Second Kings written to? By the way, First Second Kings was one book. We divide it up in the English Bible, but in the Hebrew Bible, it's all one book. And it was written to the exiles that were in Babylon who were there wondering, has God, has God done with us? God made promises about the throne of David. He made promises about, um, you know, the land and all this, about the temple, but all that's over. Is he done with us? Did God fail in his word? Is he going to fulfill his promises? God said that there would always be, there was going to be one coming out of the house of David that would sit upon the throne of David, but there's nobody there now. The only one is in prison. And so they have all these questions. But the end of this whole book gives hope because you know what it does? It points to the fact that there still is a future for the house of David. There is still a king that is going to come. Now remember in First and Second Kings what we learn, that all this is about how that the, the, these kings all failed. That's what it's all about. And, you know, you remember that in the beginning, actually, First and Second Kings is a continuation of First and Second Samuel. David, you might remember, has unified the tribes of Israel into a kingdom. God promised that from his line would come a messianic king who would establish his kingdom over all the nations and fulfill all the promises that God made to Abraham. And so the book of Kings tells us of this long line of kings that came after David, but guess what? None of them lived up to David. None of them. 
I mean, in fact, they ran the nation right into the ground. And, and that's really what we learn here. We learn that God sent them prophets to warn them. In fact, you know, David gave a charge to Solomon, you know, make sure you obey the covenant. Solomon starts out good. He builds a temple, does a lot of good things. But then he starts making really bad decisions. I mean, he marries all kinds of foreign women, lets them worship their gods. I mean, he's, doing, he's violating everything that a king should do that was written in the book of Deuteronomy. And by the time you come to the end of Solomon's reign, he looks more like an Egyptian pharaoh than he does a king of Israel. And then his son Rehoboam makes it even worse. He splits the kingdom because of his foolishness, and now you have Jeroboam reigning in the north and Rehoboam reigning in the south. And Jeroboam makes his own religion, makes two temples to rival the one in Jerusalem, makes golden casts and tells the people to worship them. He creates a whole false system of worship. And now you have these two parallel kingdoms, kings one after another occupying a throne, and they're all bad. In fact, in the northern kingdom, there's no good kings. In the southern kingdom, there's only a handful of good kings. And by the time you get to the end of the second kings, there's two kings that rise up that are actually good. There's Hezekiah, who stands against the king of Assyria and trusts God. And there's also Josiah, who finds the scroll, the, te- the, the, the Torah, God's word in the temple as he's renovating it. It makes a covenant to obey God. That hinders judgment, but he can't take away judgment. But between those two, there's Manasseh, who is the worst king of all. But by the time you get to chapter 24 and 25, just as we looked at, judgment has come. Judgment is sealed for the nation of Judah. And so, you know, and so basically the question, and by the way, um, we just had Scott Carroll here for our legacy conference. He talked about, I just wanted to mention this in passing, the the Jehoiachin ration stone, you know, I got a picture of it here for you. You remember archaeologists, I don't know if you were here and you heard him say this, but archaeologists found, actually it was Robert Coldaway who was digging in Babylon, found this stone, and on this stone, this tablet written in cuneiform is a list of the rations given to, to Jehoiachin, king of Judah, while he was kept there in Babylon, which gives historical evidence that all this is true. You know, they found this stone, found his name on it, found that he was given a ration, and what you find on that stone is exactly what the Bible says. He was given more than all the other prisoners. He was treated better than all the rest because he was the king of Judah. But the book ends with him being at the table of the king. It's not much of a, but it gives us a glimmer of hope. It tells us that God is not finished. God has not abandoned the line of David. So the question now is, how is God going to fulfill his promises to Abraham and to David? How is he going to bless the nations and bring in the messianic kingdom? And so to answer that, you have to read on. You have to read on. Of course, we can read on, and we know what will happen. We know that God will send his Messiah. He will send the son of David, and he is the only king that we could put our hope in. He is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And he fulfilled all of the law. He was God's perfect king. And he would be the one who would come also that would bear God's wrath for our sins. He would be the one that would take judgment away because of what he did on the cross. He is the only hope. And so the end of the book, in a kind of crazy way, points to this future king, the Messiah, who will come who is our only hope. 
for salvation. Hope even in the day of wrath. The only hope that you have or this world has is Jesus Christ. He's the only hope. And you need to put your hope, your faith in what he did. If you will trust him, your sins will be charged to his account. You will escape God's coming wrath. Jesus promised this in John 5.24. He who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into condemnation but is passed from death unto life. If you put your faith in Christ. Now, some of you might think, well, I'm young. I want to enjoy my life for a while. Well, that's foolish. That's just what the people of Judah did. They, they didn't take God's judgment serious. They didn't take God's wrath seriously. Did you know that Christ could come at any moment? Or you could die at any moment? And if you're not saved, you're going to face God's eternal wrath. You're gambling against eternity. And I'll close with this. In 1982, ABC News reported on an unusual work of modern art, a chain affixed to a shotgun. It was to be viewed by sitting in the chair and looking directly into the gun barrel. How would you like to do that? The gun was loaded and set on a timer to fire at an undetermined moment within the next 100 years. So here's a shotgun with a timer. It could go off at any time, a chair in front of it. And if you wanted to, you could just sit in that chair for a minute. Any takers on that? The amazing thing was that people waited in line to sit and stare into that gun barrel. They all knew it could go off at any, any time at point-blank range. They were gambling that the fatal blast wouldn't happen during their minute in the chair. Crazy, right? You know something crazier than that? Are people sitting here today or living today that have not trusted Christ, that are gambling with the fact that they will not face God's wrath and are putting off salvation and have not gotten that matter settled. That's a bigger gamble. Unless you put your trust in Christ, you're playing with your eternal destiny and you're not serious about God's wrath. The whole end of 2 Kings teaches us to take God's wrath seriously. God is patient. But if you continue to reject his word, judgment is certain. You better flee to Christ right now. Flee to him now. Let's bow for prayer together. So, Father, again, we thank you for your word. In it we see your attributes, your character, that causes us to love you all the more. Indeed, you are a holy God, and we praise you and thank you that you are a holy God. Lord, we can't praise you enough for that. And because you are holy, Lord, you're a God of wrath, and you must judge sin. I pray that no one will take your wrath lightly. We also thank and praise you that you are indeed a God of mercy and love and patience. And that is all revealed in Jesus Christ, the greatest king, the king of kings the son of David who came to this world to be our Savior and to offer a way of deliverance from eternal wrath. How we thank you for this wonderful gospel, for what Christ has done for us. And I pray that if there's anyone listening to me that has never gotten that matter settled, that, Lord, they would not hesitate. They wouldn't put it off, procrastinate. But, Lord, at this very moment, 
that they'll reach out in faith for your mercy. That they'll pray and say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Save me. Save me. Thank you, Father, for salvation in Christ. May we never, ever think lightly, take it it for granted. We pray in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen.